they taught me the Bible. They taught me the nuts and bolts. They uh, were long-suffering with me because I was a knucklehead, and I still love them and still credit them for a lot of even what went into building this church. And so I'm very excited about what God's going to do through Rodney and his team. Hey, listen, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is going to be super helpful for us today. We're going to see Christ. We're going to see God's gospel to us very clearly through this passage. It's a little bit of a bedrock passage. 1 Corinthians 15, this is Paul speaking to a church not too terribly different than this church, not better than this church, not worse than this church, just a church. And I'm excited to hear this through their ears. This is God's word to, to them, and it's God's word to us today. So this is 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read the first four verses to you. Now, Paul says... I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures." If we were to just pause right there, we're starting a new series today that I'm just a little bit excited about. I've been waiting for this series for a long time, and I couldn't be more excited about it. I couldn't be more excited about leading in a church that lets me do this. <laughs> you guys actually, you actually let me do this. And, and when I say let me do this, I mean I get to preach and explore the gospel, and I don't take that for granted. A lot of churches, they don't get to do this, Right? The gospel is seen as something to be moved on from, something to be graduated from, not something to sit on or stop. And I'm excited that I get to do this. If you were in our most recent partners meeting, it was just a few months ago, really, you heard me cast a little bit of vision for 2020, just a couple bits and pieces. In fact, Hillary um, spoke about it just a few minutes ago on how we wanted to handle prayer here a little bit differently than we had in the past. There was about a dozen of us in one of those classrooms praying over revival and spiritual awakening in the city, praying for those who are far from Christ, praying for those who are close to Christ but need their hearts totally changed, need their hearts revived. And then we also talked about how we'd like to see 2020 become a year where we handle the gospel differently, where we reinvest on how we handle the gospel as missionaries, as Christians, as disciple makers, but really handle it for everyday life. Because that's the leadership's hope here at Legacy is for us to recapture and reinvest in the greatest story ever told and how it matters for everyday life, not just for the day you got saved at church camp, but for Tuesday, for your marriage for your finances, for everything, how it matters. So what we're going to explore, in all honesty, is actually impossible to fully explore on this side of eternity, which means I'm going to have to start something that I could never finish on this side of eternity. It will take eternity to come into contact and start to grasp, start to truly grasp all of the various components that spin around this very common thing that we call the gospel, the good news that God has, not just for mankind, but for all of creation, that it will be renewed, that all that is sad will be broken and will be made new again because of the perfect work of Christ who came to live, die, and live again to actuate this thing that God had always wanted, which is a renewed creation for his glory, that God would, would go from, from heaven 
from the, from the Trinity to come is fully God, fully man, live among us, laugh among us, eat among us, be among us, die passionately, be raised by the power of the Holy Spirit, go to the right hand of the Father while he sends the Holy Spirit to us in which he will come back and collect us again one day and bring us to his side of eternity. This gospel, this thing that we have treated very commonly, it cannot be experienced fully in this lifetime. Let me be clear about that for those of us who have felt maybe that we've waded out to the deep end and fully understand this thing called the gospel. We don't. And I know what it feels like. It's this syndrome we slip into when we see something often enough. We feel like we've seen everything there is to see. If you've been to Dollywood a million times, you know how to get around. You've been downtown a million times. Probably nothing really changes without you noticing, but nothing really changes, right? It's just the same old, same old. Every once in a while, you'll get a glimpse of something that is different from the last time you were there. Like, hey, there's bathrooms over here. Did you know that? I didn't know there's bathrooms over here. But besides that, it's just the same old thing. Doesn't change. Doesn't change at all. Currently, we don't have the ability to search out the entire scope of the gospel and the fullness of its length and its depth and its width and its breadth. We cannot comprehend everything. Can't comprehend what's incomprehensible. I don't care what your ACT score was on this side of eternity, you will never know the true shape of God and his good news for us. In fact, let's look at, stay where you're at in 1 Corinthians, but this is Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. And so it's really cool because he's actually letting us hear one of his prayers, right? I think it's cool when people tell you, hey, this is how I'm praying for you. That's what Paul is doing for this young church. And he says this in verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So what Paul is asking of God is that he would fill the Ephesian church with the fullness, knowing him in a knowledge that surpasses what we could even know today. He's basically praying that this church would comprehend the various dimensions of God and his gospel. And this is impossible here being that we don't have a tape measure of our mind or soul that we could stretch out over the different dimensions and measurements of God and say we have fully plumbed the depths of who God is. It's impossible for us to do it in this speck of time on this speck of dirt. I mean, just consider for a moment that even in eternity, I love thinking and dreaming about this, even in eternity, our exposure to God and his gospel will grow by the millisecond. That every second you spend in eternity, it will be greater, more joyful, more satisfying than the second that was just before it. Think about that. Let that sit for a second. There's no plateau in eternity. There's, there's no stabilization of your experience. It will swell. It will grow. It will accumulate You know, your first experience when you break into this thing called eternity when you see Christ, when your son has been replaced with the glory of God and the road's just made out of stuff that's different and everything looks and sounds different, in that moment, that aha moment where you're just splashed with this new reality that is eternity, that's not what you have for the rest of eternity. It will grow from there. It will swell from there with the beauty and the grandeur and the splendor of God. Every joy that you have today the best food you've ever eaten, the best memory that you have, the best feeling you've ever felt is just a broken shadow of a shadow of an echo of an echo 
of the joy that we will feel and will grow and will accumulate and snowball the entire time we are in eternity with our prince, with our king. No human language has ever been able to express what this will be like. I can't do it. Brilliant men and women for eternity have racked vocabulary, trying to construct statements that would give a picture of what this joy will be like, and we've not been able to do it. But there will be a day with sounds that you've never heard, surrounded by colors that you've never seen, expressing with emotions that you've never really felt, in a place with no shame, a place with no boredom or discontent, a place with no regrets, we will declare God's glory over us. This, this is why Paul says to die is gain. That's why he says to die is gain. But it's also why he says to live is Christ, right? And if you were to read that backward, cannot reach the edges of what I just described in this time and space. But God has given us so much to experience here today, so much to be satisfied with today that to live is to share a beautiful, joyful experience with Christ, especially as it's reflected in his gospel to us. We have been given everything we need for godliness, insatisfaction, and joy in this world. Let me just take your Bible, for instance, right? If you have a Bible or an app, it's the story of the gospel, right? This is a bunch of different authors in different languages even, written at different times, in different genres, in different little specks of dirt, all over, and all of it lifts and elevates and drives our attention to see the best story, which is the story of God and his love for mankind and his glory in redeeming everything that is broken. Every text that you come across is just a subtext to a main text. Every story that you read is a substory. As good as it is, as beautiful as it is, as much of your favorite passage it might be, it is there to lift your attention to see Christ as he really is and see how much God really loves you. Every story, every story, pointing to the story that answers our deepest questions, that ministers to what haunts us the most. Boredom with this gospel, boredom with this Bible, that's a theological disconnection. It's not a problem with the story. It's not a problem with your Bible. It's a problem with us. It's actually the effects of the fall on us when we do get bored with those things. And when I say the effects of the fall, I mean in two dimensions, right? I mean, in one sense, sin has affected us, and so we are victims. And then in another sense, sin has affected us so that we are purveyors of sin. We sin as much as sin has made us a victim, right? So in one way, the, the, the Bible and the gospel have become boring and just kind of static for you because of what Adam and Eve have done, and it has just ripped through the ages, and now it finds you, and you just aren't fascinated with it. That part of that, you're victimized by sin, part of it. Part of it, you're a purveyor of sin, which means you are also quick to grab idols and grab things in your life, just like I am, and put them in the middle and say, this is more adorable than the gospel. This is more fascinating. This is more enchanting. This is more intoxicating than the gospel is for me, and I will serve it instead. So it's both. It's both. Let me explain. C.S. Lewis, who's probably the greatest or one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, is most well known for one of his works that both kids and adults love, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that is actually showing us a visual for the gospel's fascinating complexity and its depth, its depth of all things, right? Listen, if you're 
not familiar with this landmark story, I'll run you through it because I think this could be helpful for the board, right? What you need to know is it's an allegorical fantasy. It's a fantastical writing. It's a story about some kids that stumble from this world into another world, and they do so through a wardrobe, right, which is just an old way of saying closet. That's what we call a closet today. They didn't have their closets built into drywall like we do. They had like this piece of furniture that you could hang stuff in. Sometimes you could walk it. You could have a walk-in wardrobe, right? And they'd have walk-in wardrobes, which was the case in this story. They would walk from this world into another one, and this other one was a broken land, delirious in its brokenness, begging for a rescuer, looking, waiting for a hero. Narnia. Narnia is under this heavy spell by a wicked witch, a spell where it is always winter and never Christmas, as Lewis says. And they need Aslan. Aslan is a lion, and he's actually the picture of Christ in this story. And this Aslan will interact with the kids He interacts with all the woodland creatures. He interacts with the witch. He actually gives his own life to what? To break the spell. To break the spell. What I'd like to just zoom in on more is the wardrobe. The wardrobe itself. It's just a finite piece of furniture. It's a bulky wooden piece of furniture, complete with edges and doors and workmanship. It holds stuff. It's got clothes in it. It has limitations, and yet it's unlimited. It has a world inside of it. It could be explored and yet never really fully explored. It's the whole idea of the wardrobe. And it's cool because in the story you see the interaction that two of the kids have with this wardrobe. One of them is Susan. She's the older child, a little bit of a skeptic at the beginning. And she says, look, it's just an ordinary wardrobe. Look, she says, there's the back of it. But that's not the response we get from the youngest child, Lucy, With faith, she says, this must be simply an enormous wardrobe, right? I think most of us are like Susan, not Lucy. We see the gospel, but it's not a doorway to splendor. It's not a doorway to something deeper. It's just a piece of furniture. It's just a piece of furniture. It's finite. It has length, has depth, has width. You can measure it. It's singular in its purpose. You can plumb its depths. It has limitations. It grows dust. It's common doesn't require any imagination. It's not portable. It's kind of remedial. It's very basic. See, my chief goal in this season is to lead you to see that there is no back to the wardrobe, that there's no back to the gospel, no ordinariness to the gospel, only a larger world begging to be enjoyed, begging to be explored, begging to be mystified by and marveled by. And it gets larger the more you enter into it. It's not finite. It extends. It's not basic. I agree. I agree with Lucy. It's simply enormous. I turn 44 next month. I'm still youngish, right? Almost getting a little bit older, but I still feel young. I've spent almost a quarter of a century now exploring this thing called the gospel of Jesus, and I've got to say I'm still learning. I'm still learning. I'm still enjoying I'm still enchanted by it, drawn by it. I find myself being changed by it. I find myself dreaming about it. That sounds weird. I I could spot it in the Old Testament, and I'm excited when I do. I could see in the news how creation is groaning for it. I see people that walk around me that really desperately need the story of this gospel. 
The more I see and enjoy, the more I see that there is far more to see and enjoy. Because you see, your gospel, the good news for God over mankind, has many faces to it, facets, dimensions, angles, themes. It's got multiple ones. I mean, think about the fact that it can be collapsed into the size of a tweet, right? But then it can fill libraries. We, we see toddlers talk about it and probably do a pretty good job of presenting the gospel. And then we see C.S. Lewis write a fantastical masterpiece about it all at the same time. You know, it's funny, it's interesting to me that there are tutorials all over the internet teaching Instagram influencers how to capture the best version of the selfie for them, either by picture or by video, right? You know what's the funniest thing about that sentence is my great-grandparents wouldn't understand any of what I just said, right? <laughs> Internet, Instagram, influencer, selfie, all of it would be lost on them. You all get it, though. You've seen those, seen those thumbnails on YouTube. But even for the photogenic, which I am not, I'm always laughing with my wife because you could drop your phone on accident and it can snap a picture of her and it would be this perfect picture, right? I could have a professional photographer. It's not happening. It's not happening. One eye's looking this way. I've got spit. There's a glare, something. I'm the least photogenic person in the world. But even for the most photogenic people in the world, some angles are better than others for capturing the same beauty. Some angles are more flattering, right? You see, the gospel story is powerful to save anyone who will trust their life to it. Anyone who hears it and mingles that hearing with faith and trust, it's powerful to save anybody. And God, in his incredible thoughtfulness and brilliance, has revealed this glory of the gospel to you and me in various ways, themes, ideas, threads we can pull, pictures, angles. It's a story of sacrifice, but not just a sacrifice, the best sacrifice. It's a story of a, a priest, not just any priest, but the last high priest. It's a story where justice and love combine and join and are perfect together. It's a story about how mercy and grace meet and touch and make sense. It's a story of acceptance and approval. It's a story about family relocation, even adoption itself. It's a story of redemption, freedom from sin, victory. It's a story of the death of shame, the death of sin, the death of death. It's a story of being new, being clean, being family, being safe, unlike an Instagram influencer taking 43 attempts to get the best version of self, a self that might be true, but is flattering nonetheless, the gospel is enchanting from every angle. It's effective from every angle. And even though this story enchants from every angle, some themes are going to resonate with you more than others. That's natural. That's why I led with God is so creative and so thoughtful for us. He has made us all different from each other, and there's so many angles and perspectives to his gospel, so many ways of looking at the same good news that some ways will resonate with you far more than others, right? I mean, just consider it this way. Consider an orchestra. I grew up a musician in school. When, when, an orchestra is something beautiful, and then it, it comes to a point where people are sitting, and it presents a rehearsed collaboration. It lifts a singular masterpiece for everyone to enjoy, Right? Various instruments playing at the same time. They're elevating the singular piece, telling the same tune, but with cooperation and overlap. And even, that, even though that's true, I have favorite instruments. I like them all. I like percussion. I like winds. But every time I leave a room, I think there should have been more low brass. I'm a low brass guy. I wanted something heavier in there. It could have been louder. <laughs> I have my favorites. 
This is true in the singular masterpiece that is the gospel. Multiple themes will contribute, they will cooperate, they will overlap, they will elevate each other, lift each other up, and then still one will resonate more than the other. And we're going to get to learn about these in this series. The difference between what, what the Bible calls propitiation and redemption. They're not the same word. One is the good news of mercy over you. The other is good news of freedom. But they're both the story of the gospel. Or the story that Jesus is our victor and then Jesus is our sacrifice. They're twin brothers. They're, they're telling the same story. They're just doing it with different chords. The story about how the gospel says we are no longer enslaved, but it also says you no longer have to wear any shame. And both are very good, and both are very true, and both are the same gospel, but something's going to resonate a little bit more with you than the other. Your heart likely leaps a little bit more when you're looking at the gem of the gospel from a different perspective. And our leadership team's prayer is to see a church grow and a church multiply and plant other churches that are full of gospel storytellers who know the various angles and dimensions and sounds and chords of the gospel, who will fall more and more in love with it, who will understand it for their life, who will know how, how the gospel speaks to their life when they are most afraid and most addicted, will speak to them when they are most nervous, most petrified, most lonely, how it will speak to the person next to them, how it will address the lives of everyone that swirls around them. This is what we call gospel fluency, by the way to develop a vocabulary and an ease with the story of the gospel in a way that's applicable to our lives and the lives around us so our fascination with God grows and grows. You know, it's interesting. When we started this church, one of the things that I did on Friday mornings is office out of that laundromat across the street. We had a washer and dryer. It's just that I wanted to meet people that didn't, right? Um, so I'd go there and I'd flip open my laptop, but I knew I wasn't going to get any work done. What we did as a church is we paid for people's laundry, and I had coffee for them because I wanted to learn their story. I wanted to tell them the story of God. It was a beautiful few years of getting to do that. Right? And, th and this is what I learned real quickly. If I have a homeless vet over here and an international student over here, <laughs> they need to hear the gospel. But let's just face it, they're very different people. They're going to tell you, if I ask them both, what do you think sin is? I'm going to get two totally different answers. Ask them how they see their father. Two totally different answers. The way they see slavery will be said differently. Ask them about the Bible, you'll get different answers. They have different histories, different everything, different age, different, different everything, different expectations, different heartbreaks, different everything. I learned real quickly, the best thing I could do is listen. Listen with a missionary's ears. Pray. Pray that God would give me a word to say and tell them the gospel in such a way that their heart would burn that they would resonate with the news. You see, when you leave these doors, you need to know you're entering a city where it's always winter but never Christmas. It's just the reality. My prayer, our pastor's prayer, our staff's prayer, is that you enjoy the gospel and you see how portable it is and how effective it is. Not just for evangelism, but for you. Yeah, for evangelism, but for re-evangelism as well. For your family, for yourself, I want you to be able to tell the story of God so that you hear it and others hear it with burning ears in a way that resonates with the deepest of needs. 
I mean, just look at the first sentence of what Paul says. Go back in, in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which, and here are the three things, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved. This is cool. I appreciate what Paul does here. He's actually using the word remind. He's reminding people of the gospel who already know the gospel. They already know it. He's having to remind them. They knew it. They caught it and they fumbled it, right? That's the order. The need to re-evangelize each other is a very real need. We experience the same thing today. And the gospel does three things we see in this passage. It's something that you receive, it's something you stand in, and it's something that you carry with you, okay? Three tenses, past, present, and future. This gospel is never meant to be something that is placed on a shelf, ever. It's not a sword that is left in the scabbard. So my hope is to help you reinvest and double down in the gospel of God. And and listen, I say those terms, reinvest, because we get gospel fatigue. That's That's a real thing. It's not new. It's about as cutting edge as the first century, right? We get bored with the gospel and the story of it. Some of you are already bored. Fatigued due to the effects of the fall on our hearts, right? This is why you catch Paul speaking to fatigued churches a lot. They would lose the enormity of the gospel, and it would just become a piece of furniture in the room, collecting dust. He was trying to remind them that there's a world to be explored that can never really fully be explored on the other side of that door. You talk to the Corinthians this way, the Ephesians this way, the Galatians this way. Church is full of great people, too, by the way. I mean, this is, I'll bet they did not just outright reject the gospel. It's not like they had a members meeting or a partners meeting where they're like, yeah, you know what? This gospel thing, I say we just quit talking about it. Golly. And, and, and then we'll get a church van. And then, and then they just keep moving down the items of, of church business, I guess. And they just voted the gospel out the door. I don't think that's what happened. I think probably what happened with them is what happens with you and me. And we just kind of drift. We move away from the splendor of what won us. We drop it, and what God started by the Spirit, we try to perfect with the flesh, as Paul says so well. So if this finds you today gospel fatigued, even you have to admit that the gospel felt differently when it captured you for the first time. Can you remember it? Some of you, it hasn't happened yet. I'll tell you what it felt like for me. It grabbed my heart. and There was a pit in my stomach. I'll be honest, I was scared when I heard the God. I didn't know what it was going to do to the rest of my life. I had a pretty good idea, though, the changes that were coming. I was scared, nervous, but excited, resolved, thankful, hopeful, mystified, fascinated, curious, celebratory. Why was I experiencing all of those things? Because God had given me a new heart. One that could feel the day before I didn't have one. I had a heart of stone that could not respond to God in such a way. And then God in his goodness, totally despite me, grabs me, changes my heart, and gives me a heart of flesh. Now when I look at the blood on the cross and I see an empty tomb that God is mocking death itself, I say, oh my God, oh my God. It changed me forever. Some of you remember that time for you and how you felt. But soon after your heart was awakened, you probably were introduced to the same talk I was, the now that you're a Christian talk. Right? Y'all remember that talk? Hey, now that you're a Christian, certain things you can't do anymore. We're going to take the list that you had and we're going to replace it with a new list, the now that you're a Christian list. 
Stuff you can't do. And listen, there's some truth in that, isn't there? It's just some, some stuff we can't do, right? Life has to change. Paul says to the Corinthian church, you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Paul tells the Romans, hey, listen, you're not to be conformed to the world. That's what you used to do. You used to jello shot your way through Friday nights. That's, that is the old you. There's a new you, right? New creation. It's true. It's true. There is change. But for most of us, Christianity quickly, quickly after the gospel arrested us, it became a maze of new activity that was divorced and detached from the gospel that won us. Activity? Sure, a flurry of it, right? But not attached to the gospel any longer. The gospel is no longer our first love. We have now officially graduated from the gospel. Right? And this is what it sounds like when it's in play. Here's one of the things that I learned real quickly in this. Luke, you have to give money to the church because that's what Christians do. Luke, you got to give money to the church. That's what Christians do. You used to just hoard all of your money and spend it on whatever you used to spend it on. Now you have to give money to the church. Or if you heard a worse talk than I did, you have to give 10% to the church. Or even worse, you have to give to the church. And if you do a good job of giving to the church, God will give you stuff. But if you fail in that, God's going to start taking stuff away from you, right? So you've got to give money to the church. Why? Because you're a Christian now. That's behavioral, but it's not attached to the gospel. The gospel says you're free to give. In fact, listen here. Hear me now. You're free to give it all away. Even if you were impoverished, even if you look at the, 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 the ledger at the end of the paycheck, you realize I have nothing left to give. I am what is called impoverished right now. Did you know that you're free to give away? You're free to give it away because that's the shape of the gospel. The gospel shape is, is that God himself impoverished himself all the way to death to make you wealthy, to make you wealthy. So you're free. You're free from hoarding finances to protect yourself because God is so good, he has looked after you and provided provision for you, making you wealthy with the riches of divinity itself. He has smuggled divinity into you through the gospel at his own cost, at your benefit. You're free to give. Now here's the thing, both those will build a giver, right? One has the gospel in the front seat, the other has the gospel as a piece of furniture. Both will build a giver. Here's another one. All right, Luke, now that you're a Christian, stop being a turd to your wife. Can't fight anymore, right? Should always get along. Should never, should never have big fights with your wife because you're a Christian now. Okay. Or the gospel tells us that we are free. We're, we're free to fight. We're, we're free to fight to the glory of God. But here's also the thing. I'm free to sacrifice my preferences and defer to her. And she is free now to sacrifice her preferences and defer to me. Here's the thing. I'm free now to own the mess, all the broken bits and pieces around me. I'm free to own and take responsibility for that mess, even if I'm right and she's wrong. And she's free to do the same. Why are we free? Because that is the shape of the gospel the story of a better groom who took responsibility for the mess around him, even though it wasn't his fault, it was his bride's fault, who deferred his preferences to lift and elevate and love and adore another who didn't even deserve it. So now I can love my bride. We can love our spouses through the lens of the gospel. Because here's the thing, both of those will probably produce families that look like they're not fighting all the time. 
Only one will build a marriage where you can look at your spouse through the lens of the gospel and adore them, not for what they can do for you, not for how glorious you can be in that little arrangement, but because of how glorious God is, and you are free to come in last place. <laughs> You're free to not be right. You're free to be second place. You're free. See, here's my point. So many of us were taught to live differently, but not in a way that centered on the gospel. But if you detach the gospel from all the various do's and don'ts, you will lose Christianity itself. You'll lose it. You won't have it anymore. What you'll have is a, is a priesthood, a Levitical priesthood, complete with its system of sacrifices to make yourself cleaner and look better, complete with a ranking order so you can compare yourself to those that you think you behave better than, and you can feel shame around those who behave better than you. That's what happens when you detach the gospel from the do's and the don'ts. If you divorce the gospel from all this biblical, well-behaved activity, you're also no longer free to enjoy Jesus unless you're perfect at your behavior. Then you can enjoy him. But how often is that? And if you detach your good deeds from the gospel, then even your good deeds themselves are a denial of what God has done on the cross. Let me say that again so you don't miss that. Even your good deeds, if they are divorced from the gospel, are themselves a denial of the lengths that God went to to win you. Because what you're doing and trying to get approval and trying to get comfort and trying to get glory and trying to get, 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 what you're trying to do is you're saying, if I behave clean enough, if I perform well enough, then it will make up for what Christ was unable to do on the cross. What he did was good, maybe glorious on a Tuesday and a Wednesday, but I have to actually make up for his lack of splendor with my splendor. Friends, that's a sin. That's a sin. We have to turn from that. I'm not saying to turn from your good deeds. I'm saying to turn from what's behind some of your good deeds. Did you know that when we repent, we repent for doing things we shouldn't do? Sometimes we need to repent for why we do the things that we should do. Look at the Pharisees. They did everything right, but everything inside of them was for a poor motivation, right? We have do's and don'ts in the Bible, and they are to be taken incredibly seriously. But they are in the shadow of the cross, which declares done, done. If you obey for any other reason, that might be a religion for sure, but it's not Christianity. It might be a religion, but it's actually closer to Buddhism, where you can get a karmic response for your good behavior, and possibly, if you're bad, a karmic response for your bad behavior. I mean, can you see why, at this point, why we have fought for years so hard to prevent the gospel from becoming a piece of furniture here? Why we put this prefix on everything we do called gospel-centered. That's probably bothered some of you, right? Luke, why is everything so gospel-centered? Gospel-centered preaching. Gospel-centered kids community. Our weddings are gospel-centered. Our funerals are gospel-centered. The way we do everything, peer counseling, gospel-centered, right? Everything, the way we build our pastors, gospel-centered. The way we plant churches, gospel-centered. Everything we do, we put that prefix there, not to be cool, not to be missional, not to get people to like us more, but because we want to build disciples that live from the overflow of what God has done, not live in such a way to get something that he hasn't given yet but to live in the reflection of the truth of the gospel. Friends, we haven't even made it from the shallow end yet. There is so much to enjoy and discover. There is so much exploration to be had. Lucy is right. It is simply enormous.
simply enormous. So there's room for us to repent when we're approached with the grandeur of the gospel. Let me ask you, are you fatigued and bored with the gospel today? I mean, when Paul is reminding this church, is he reminding you as well as me? Are we gospel fatigued? There's no deficiency in God's glory. There's deficiency in us. Deficiency in us. But here's the good news. The the Holy Spirit, this is what I find to be fascinating. The Holy Spirit thrives in making Christ and the gospel more beautiful to you. Did you know that that's one of his roles? That's, that's the hat, I guess you could say, he wears. That's his deepest joy. The Holy Spirit loves to aim everybody's attention to Christ, who loves to aim everybody's attention to the Father and the overscoping good news of the gospel. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And Jesus actually tells us this in the book of John a couple times. Stay where you're at. We're going to put them up on the screen. John 14, this is Christ. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that's the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your, what, remembrance all that I have said to you. Why? Because we need to be reminded even of the stuff we know. John 16, nevertheless, Christ says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What does all this mean? It means that you have God to appeal to if you find yourself bored and lacking in fascination. I don't know if you know that you have permission to pray like this, but you can actually just petition the Lord and say, hey, listen, I'm just not fascinated. I'm actually closer to what Luke was calling fatigued of the whole thing. I mean, I hear about the splendor. It captures me episodically, a moment here, a moment there. I see pictures of it, but it doesn't, I'm not arrested. I'm not enchanted. Did you know that you can ask God to change your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit? Did you know that you could say, could you please change my heart? Can you make me love what I don't love? Can you make me dream about what I just can't dream about? Did you know that you can do that? Here's my heart application for you. Heart meaning tangible. is to surround yourself with passages in the Bible that describe, that give a picture of this beautiful gospel. To put your eyes on it and to dream and to meditate to interact with it, to pray it. Ask God's Spirit to make it clear to you, provoking, to give you a view of it. Because here, listen, until your eyes are fixed on the truth, your heart's never going to be. Until your eyes are fixed on the truth, your heart is never really going to be. And listen, for some of you, you're you're doing that. And you're like, yeah, but Luke, and I I get this question a lot, are there books I can read? Are, are Are there things I can surround myself? The answer is yes. Right? There are books you can read. It'd be like sitting down in a living room with somebody who, who is very gospel fluent and very good at teaching the various angles of the cross, and you're listening to them talk. There are great books. In fact, if it's helpful for you, there's a blog on our website. I've listed my top 15 books, all of them on gospel. That's all they're about, the beauty of the gospel. I put 15 there because I, th- I thought 30 would be too much. And they're in order. 
Read it. Interact with it. Highlight, underline, circle, argue with it. Right? Memorize it. Meditate on it. Ask the Lord to make it clear. Ask the Lord to convince you. Ask the Holy Spirit to move through the passages of the Scripture. When you read the prodigal son, ask for God to make it amazing to you. When you read the Bible, ask the Lord to open it to you, to open the eyes of your heart that you see it like you've never seen it before. And listen, pray this like your life depends upon it. Beg God like everything is hanging on it. And read with an expectation that God is actually going to do what I'm, what I'm saying. Pray with expectation that the Holy Spirit will make this gospel that we've been talking about both beautiful and terrifying to you. Because it'll be both the more you understand it. Terrifying because of what we did to provoke God to do something so drastic and beautiful because of what he did for us at his cost, at our benefit. But there's things that we'll need to turn from. We'll need to turn from relegating the gospel to just a piece of furniture in our life. We'll need to turn from behaving in such a way that is just detached from the gospel, divorced, cut off from the gospel. We'll need to get good at not just repenting for bad deeds, but repenting for good deeds that are cut off from gospel motivation. Remember, any good thing you do to gain acceptance or approval or security or comfort, anything you do that is good apart from the glory of God and what he has already done for you, that's a sin. That's a sin. You know, here in a moment, we're going to take communion. And this is what I love about communion. I'm going to read something to you. Stay where you're at. In Revelation 2, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, but I have this against you. He's talking to an Ephesian church now. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Okay. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove the lampstand from its place unless you repent. Okay. Many believe that when it says return to the first love, it means the gospel, and I would agree with that. But they say and return to those works. Most scholars would say that those would be works that would be emblematic of the gospel. So they're talking about baptism and communion. Whether that's the exact case or not, I don't know. I wouldn't fight anybody over it, but it does make sense to me. It does make sense to me. The bread, the juice that we're going to take here in a moment, it's emblematic of what God has designed, actuated, and sealed for us. What God has built, structured, come and done, and executed, and then applied to us. It's a sign for all of it. It's good news, and we have to be reminded of it. Reminded. You know, in our last partners class where we were talking to people that were prospective members and partners here, one, I got a real good question from somebody that says, hey, how do you keep something that you do every week? How do you keep that from being treated with contempt or just kind of ordinary? The answer is you don't. I can't. I can't. That table is meant to remind you of the gospel so that the gospel never becomes this wooden thing. That's what it's meant to do. But if the gospel is some finite, common, blah, 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 then how do we expect communion not to be? Of course it will be. It's just an echo. When you take communion, let that be the acid test for you. Is it boring? Does it remind you of something boring? When you take communion today, are you more Susan or Lucy? Is it just a wardrobe? Or is it something far, far deeper? 
more unexplainable, with depths that can't be plumbed. Ask the Holy Spirit for comprehension and help and ask as if your life depended upon it. Go ahead and stand with me. We're gonna finish and listen, if you're in the room, as you're standing, if you're in the room and you are not a Christian, I know that we do, not everybody in this room is a Christian and I know that and some of you came in and you're just checking things out, you're listening and that's fine, I'm excited to have you here, welcome and I'd love to meet you. I would also love to speak directly to you and just remind you that before there was light, before there were molecules, before there was time, before there was anything, there was a kind father from eternity past. And a kind father who would come millennia later as a kind son, who would live perfectly, die passionately, raise again powerfully by the Spirit of God. I would just implore you to turn from your boredom Turn from trying to behave to whatever standards you've built yourself and have failed to meet. And just to communicate, there is freedom for you. That's why there's something enchanting when Jesus says, come to me, all who are heavy laden. There's something beautiful in that. And as I've already said, beg the Lord to change your heart as if your life depended upon it. You know, one of the last lines in the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is of Aslan. He's already given his life. He's already come back to life. And there's this brief moment where he's throwing the kids up in the air and catching them. And they're rolling around and laughing over this excitement that is his new life. And he says this. He says, and now to business. I feel I'm going to roar. You had better put your fingers in your ears. And this is what is said in the book of Revelation. 21, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, listen, our champion has roared from an empty tomb. He has overcome our sadness, and he has brought spring to our winter. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for being good to our church and being good to us by your gospel. And Lord, as you're moving in our hearts, I pray that you would do the divine task of taking what we have called common and making it incredibly fascinating. That's not something I can do with a sermon. It's not something a book can do. Those are, those are rocks only you can move. Those are things only you can do. And so as we sing and as we take communion and as we think and as we meditate on this, Lord, I'm begging you to change hearts in this room, to become so fascinated with your gospel that it changes even the very reason we do what we do. That we would be a, a, a church full of couples that fight to the glory of God, that give to the glory of God that we would become a church of people that would make disciples, that would be pure, that would enjoy you. But we would do all of this rooted in the, in the motivation that it is already done. And there's nothing I can do that will change your affection for me. And there's no bad behavior that will cause you to say, you're done, you're out, I'm tired of you, I've given you enough opportunities. Now you're just shameful. Your gospel is so good, Lord, that we would actually see it for all it's just as Paul says, that we would begin to wrap our arms around 
the width and the depth and the length and the breadth of this gospel, knowing that we'll never get our arms all the way around, but that we would know the love that surpasses all knowledge, as he says, that that would happen today. It would happen as we take communion. Lord, it would happen as we sing. It would happen as we leave this place. (coughs) You are so very good to us. You are so kind. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.